This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Today's guest on the Did Nothing Wrong podcast is Carl Folk. Carl started the Institute of Unreality, where the focus is on weaponized unreality, which is a middle-out conglomeration of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theory, state and non-state PR, and corporate media synergy between them all. We're glad to have him with us today. Carl, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thanks for joining us today. How's it going, guys? Going great, going great. Glad to have you here today. Glad to be here. So, Carl, what made you first become interested in studying the far right? (laughs) Honestly, that's like one of those questions. It happened over years, right? So I'm in my 30s now. When I was in my early 20s, you know, I did a a fair amount of protesting um, against like the RNC and different things. And it was as as an activist purely. And things progressed, you know, life happens. So you're not as active as you want to be in certain things. And I am a huge reader. So for me, what really started my journey was I started with learning about Russian misinformation and the construction of Putin's Russia. And that to me is one of the most interesting periods of time for a number of reasons, both politically and kind of um, internally with how politics were used. And so for me, that anytime you get into Putin and you really start looking into the misinformation world, into the, 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 the systems they've set up to propagandize, inevitably you start bumping into things that we understand in America as, as, as the far right and the ultra new right. Um, And they all share, you know, these are big pools. So for me, I jumped from Russian misinformation and the construction of the Russian misinformation state to right-wing misinformation. And Uh that chain led me into the traditionalist world that then led me into the, the Bannon circle of the Dugan world. And then you realize it's all the same world and Mm -hmm. the links start showing up. And I'm a mind map person. So for me, I started building this map three, almost four years ago. Some of these maps almost four years ago. And you start to see this picture that's way more uncomfortable. And that's really what turned me over to this is now my calling. Right. Um, This is the thing that you have to do because you know. And if you know, you have, you know, I think for a lot of people in this line of work, there's a compelling aspect of this is something that's going to hurt people right and for me that was my moment you know and then that was reinforced years later in 2020 during the riots here in minneapolis and really being on the ground when there was essentially a um, a stealth right-wing insurgency going on both during and then after the the riots here 
Right. And, you know, that that's what switched me over from being just an activist to really pursuing this in a way where I can have these conversations and have the larger conversations. And then and that led to me being able to talk to, to people who are much smarter than I will ever hope to be. And that helped me understand the thing that I turned into weaponized on reality, the, the digital machine, the, the corporate machine, all of this together, you know, that that's the Russian model. And right. we're just starting to get it here. That's fascinating. You're kind of looking at guys like Vladislav Surkov, who, you know, pioneered the use of let's just write reality like a script and tell everybody exactly. what it's going to be. Well, he's one of the names you hear, you know, as the, these are the, mind, the the brain trust, right? For what we would kind of understand is modern misinformation or the, right. you know, the nothing is real quotient. As you said, we'll just write a script. Mm hmm. And these are the people that play this part and this is the people yep. that play that part. And yeah, I think you're right on when you say this is a model that has moved into this space, into this sphere. And a lot of people are essentially kind of finding their place in all of that. Yep. So we're talking about information warfare here. And when you talk about that, what, what do you mean when you use the phrase information warfare? Well, so in our, you know, in our situation here right now, information warfare is going to look like anything from the conspiracy theory, you know, the QAnon thing, right. level conspiracy theory, to questioning the election. The information warfare component, though, is that then all of this goes back and forth between each other. It's an internal ecosystem, right? So you have someone like um, Rudy. Giuliani, right, right. right? Let's say Rudy shares something, but that comes from this news source that is actually written by, let's say, Stu Peters. So then now Stu's actually feeding Flynn or whoever this info, but it's coming from a third source that then is making money off of both of those interactions. So it's, it's this bizarre web that then has synergy that makes them money, gets them engagement, allows them then to feed back into it more and more and more. And that builds itself, right? Like that turns into its own ecosystem then pretty quickly. Ultimately, that then just has the ability to crush, you know, crush objective reality. You can't fact check your way out of something where someone can pull up 30 articles that are all fake from two authors mm -hmm. that reinforce something. It's very hard to do in real time. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point that the ecosystem makes meaningful fact checking that actually would convince anybody almost impossible because it's like, you got articles. I got articles here. Here's my articles. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that gets at the whole point, right? Like modern propaganda, especially this kind, isn't meant to push you towards something. Right. It's, it's meant to make you say, well, I don't care enough to look. Yeah. And there was a point when it seemed like everyone was, was asking, well, where, what's your source? Where's your source? And, and for a while, if you go back far enough, the right didn't necessarily have one. It Maybe it was, well, just do your own research or look on YouTube or it's something from 4chan. But now in the year 2023, there's always a source. There's always a website. There's always somewhere that people can go. So there, that, that missing link it, is gone. And it, that feels very deliberate. Well, and I think it is deliberate, right? Like we've seen exactly that. Well, you don't have a source because one rightfully doesn't exist to support your, let's, you know, genocidal claim. But now they've manufactured, you know, what I keep calling infrastructure. And the infrastructure is things like, let's say, the Manhattan Institute, right? Like that's a huge infrastructure hub for this. 
but then they have all these subsidiaries that look and feel real, but are really managed by them. So you have something like city journal, right? Yeah. City journal is (sighs) rough (laughs) (laughs) and like Rufo and all these different people have kind of written for it and around it. And now if you ask someone to quote, prove some awful claim about trans, you know, anti-trans science, they're going to go pull something that looks like a scientific article from city journals lockers, and they're going to put it up there and it's going to look official. It's all about the, the feeling, right? Like Colbert was right. right. It's truthiness, right? It's not, <laughs> it's, it's the feeling. It's not, it's not the thing. It's the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's become good enough for the vast majority of people on that side. They just, they have the faintest hint of cover and that's what they're, that's what they're going to go with. Yeah. If it makes a good screenshot and they can share the screenshot, then there you go. You're in. Ah, I have a source. And what, what percentage of their audience is even going to look for it or read it or care? Well, what we saw something recently where I think it was NBC posted something about the the far right's obsession with exercise. And then even Joe Rogan got on this like, ah, this is ridiculous. You think everything is far right and you, they just don't want you to be healthy. And this is about controlling you. And of course, no one looked at the article and and the person who wrote it is actually involved in fitness and is actually just criticizing the extremes and depths that the right has taken it to. But the audience doesn't care. They, nope. they don't they don't care. Well, it's all, it's all about the feeling. I, all of this, people ask, you know, what they should take away. It's about what it makes you feel, you know, like fear sells drugs, uh, anxiety sells like drugs. You start mixing those things, you get into even weirder combinations. Right. And I think that that's the part, like for me, looking at radicalization funnels and different things that exist within this world, they, because the people who are putting this material out in a lot of cases have come down the radicalization funnel. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that that fundamental disconnect between people who don't believe what they do and them, that chasm isn't being jumped. So they're not grabbing as many new people as I think they think they are, um, but they're still grabbing new people with this. And I think that that's the part where I'm just still kind of, I, I have moments of shock you know, where it's just like you, you exist obviously in a silo. Most people do not a knock, whatever. That's fine. But living in a silo then that you don't understand and you don't understand what it's actually doing. Right. A lot of people ask me like where my line is for people. And it's if they acknowledge that they're in that silo, that they've gone down the funnel and that they just don't give a shit, you know, like that for (laughs) me is the scariest part. Yeah. Um, With, with a lot of this, isn't even necessarily the the cascading effects which are horrifying but it's just the i don't have anything i care about enough to be honest so i'm just going to put this out there that's a pretty scary um mindset and it seems that's the thing that's grown as much as the misinformation is the well my information makes me feel good so it's good right yeah and it just comes back to the idea of like that whole sense of we're going to make it so difficult for you to exist in this news environment. We're going to make it so obnoxiously hard. We're going to flood the zone so badly with shit that at some point you're going to get frustrated. You're going to throw up your hands and you're just going to grab whatever it is that makes you feel the best and say, fuck it. 
this is where I'm at with all of this right now. Exactly. I mean, I've like I've likened it to being inside of a washing machine that's on in <laughs> the ocean during a hurricane at night. You're not getting out of that. You're holding on to the washing machine or anything else you find. And that's this that's the concern, right? Is like this thing turns objects that are not great into glue for right. certain people. And there's there's like a finality to to people's opinions and decision making processes. They get to that whatever point it is that, like you said, makes them feel good and good luck changing their mind. It's it's not impossible, but it is nearly so. And some people just cannot be moved by anything. Yeah. Like there's got to be a level of cognitive dissonance and sunk cost. Right. Like we're probably never going to know. Right. Uh, the full extent of the psycho, the psychological reasoning. I mean, we've got good guesses. There's a ton of very well-written material out there that makes some really good conjectures. But you have to assume that that exact thing is almost a physical act once you're that far in. Um, you know, it's got to ring that cognitive dissonance in your head like a bell. And I've got to assume that hurts. Like, cognitive dissonance hurts. And, you know, for some people, you are averse to pain, no matter who you are, even if it's mental pain. And that that I think those things play together in a pretty fundamental way. And they almost have to. So how do we get past this? How do we get to the point where we can think about actually winning this information war, do you think? I think it's going to have to happen in waves there's going to be no one answer, right? Like, because we all have different ways of understanding our consensus because we all have different understandings of what like our, our own feelings are. Right. I don't think there's one fit all way. We win the information more. The real ways that we're ever going to actually get a hold of this though, is by strangling it at the source within social media. And that's going to, I mean, we're talking entire shifts of how we understand social media and, and, and governmental response, right? Like, I think people want to believe that you're going to be able to law and order our way out of this. Right. And this isn't something that you can police, for lack of a better word, our way out of, right? Like, this is a systemic issue now that, that we're going to have to address systemically, but also in ways almost like a pandemic response where you can spot where this is a problem area. So we have to kind of get there and neuter its ability to spread further um, as quickly as possible. It's also, I mean, the biggest thing we have to overcome right now is the stories we're telling ourselves and each other about what this is and what the reality of the threat we're facing is. And that for me has been the hardest one to articulate, but also I think the one that is probably the most likely to succeed, right? Is we all have to agree as a society on some basic stuff. There's a floor here that we have to admit exists that we all share and move from there. We're never, I mean, these are things that like, you're not going to, we're not going to be able to moderate our way out of. There are very few things that are like technologically um, out there that we're going to be able to use that can't be used to do the exact thing that they're trying to stop. So it's a conversation. It's understanding. It, it, it's literally finding 
community is the only way right now that I think we get ahead of this. And obviously educating yourself to the best of your ability on anything. It doesn't even need to be this. Just anything. Having some knowledge that's based on fact and truth. It's kind of basic anti-authoritarian 101, right? Like start making, taking some notes on what you've seen, what you know has happened. And it's just the weird stuff you almost have to do to keep yourself grounded because that's where this starts is with you understanding what is real and what isn't right because they're trying to question everything and I, when you talk about shared realities it would be saying something like vaccines are good if it, mm-hmm. and and we can't agree on that currently but if enough people could get in a room and say okay we're gonna fight about a lot of stuff republicans and democrats have always disagreed but can we just sit down and say Yes, vaccines are good and we should stop arguing about that and we should do something about the people that want to poison that discourse. Exactly. And that's literally it, though, right? Like this is going to take broad coalitions of people who dislike each other's politics immensely. It's going to take broad (laughs) coalitions of people who you're never going to assume would work together, but will. Yeah, because it's not about the politics of you and, and me. It's the politics of if this comes down, it is the boot of eternity coming down forever and that is the part where like i think a lot of people want that to be hyperbolic in their head it feels scary enough that it's hyperbolic and the truth is it's not and the thing i've noticed since the beginning of august has been there is some little shift where people are starting to realize this isn't normal and something very weird has gone on they don't know what it appears you know i'm not them but when you when you see how people are starting to react Something you can tell people just have a feeling almost, right? Like there's something that they just can't quite see, but they know is there. And that's powerful if it can be used correctly. If those of us who would like to stop this from happening more can get in between that and the people and say, you're not crazy. Something really weird did actually happen. You're not nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just it, right? Like if there's a level of, we all as humans have the, there are eyes in the forest at the edge of the clearing, right? Like that is how we grew as a species to make (laughs) it out of the woods. But that same thing now is everywhere, right? Like we, we, we have no sense of our safety, uh, you know, tuning system. It just seems to be broken. Right. So like everything's novel. So it's all scary. Right. And that's the part where like, if you can interrupt that, or even if you can get loud enough that that conversation can't happen loudly, it, it seems to work to at least slow people's movement towards the thing. We're never going to get back 30% of this country, but we can sure as heck fight for the other 60. Right. Because 10% are, are just going to be checked out regardless. That's, 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 that's America, and that's fine. <laughs> but we are going to lose a section, and we're going to have to fight for those who aren't. I'm with you and I agree. And I think this is a great plan, but the other side of that coin is the American oligarchs. It's the Musk and Peter Thiel and Zuckerberg and Mark Andreessen. I know you saw the recent Vanity Fair piece talking about this, you know, and that's just it. The American new right is the American oligarchy, right? Like at a certain level, not the whole way down, but like there's a huge portion of the American new right. That is the Silicon Valley elite. Right. And so, yeah, you're, you're going to be, we're going to be, you know, if we really want to take this on and you really think it's possible, 
then you have to mount a fight that's going to take on $200 billion worth of angry white guys yelling about how you're being mean to them. That just happen to own the two biggest social networks where people talk about this kind of thing. Yep, exactly. Funny how that works. And then internal ecosystems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the internet is not going to be where this happens if we want to actually do it. It's going to be in your neighborhoods. It's going to be on your street where you have the conversations that lead to the change. Because online, I don't know if it's actually possible right now. It's too fractured. It's too broken. But that's not to say it's worthless. I think there are two multiple levels we have to be working at at the same time to really be effective because that's what the opposition is doing, right? The opposition right. is working every level of the conversation, of politics, of the thing. So we have to be able to do that. I don't think it's worthless, but like you said, the well, you didn't mention the algorithms, but that is very much what they're controlling and what they're siphoning off this group from that group. And I, I can't tell you how many times I have seen someone's tweet who I haven't seen in three months, six months, nine months. Oh yeah. I love that guy. I used to interact with them all the time. I, I used to retweet this person all the time and they just never appear in your timeline. Yep. And again, that is deliberate. A hundred percent. And I mean, even what I've been noticing is like, I have certain people on Twitter, you know, where you get the notification if they tweet, right? Right. So it'll tell me they tweeted, but like, I'll go click and it doesn't show up. So yes, there are games being played right now at the most basic levels of social media, right? Like the algorithmic level, they're, they're, they're playing with people. And we have to just all understand Musk, that is going to be his game. He's not about social media. He's about ruining anything he can within a certain parameter. And it's not, I don't think he has any goals to do that. I think it's just who he is. He's a reactionary. He's, he, 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 he's posting white supremacist and white nationalist content. So that disconnect automatically, I think for him, makes him a threat. But I don't know if it's coordinated at the level some of this other stuff is. The algorithmic stuff, some of his choices with like Andreessen and, and Sachs and some right. of these guys, absolutely. There's absolutely a coordinated level to that. The, so to me, we don't know, I don't think, what Musk is um, fully yet. I know what I, I say he is, and I think everyone kind of, we're all starting to, to feel the same tech accelerationist thing. Mm-hmm. But I do not think we're going to be able to actually counter this on their own systems. Yeah. Yeah. I personally with Musk, I agree. I don't think there's a plan. And I am rather suspicious of the idea that he's in on anything and more that he's being led by others because it really does feel like the man has just been captured by the chance. Yeah. I mean, that is the feeling, right? Like he feels like someone who has spent two years on our poll and in like early, early 2015 and is unable to understand that his edge is not the kind of thing that most people find funny. So, yeah, I, I think I actually agree with that. I don't think Musk is some sort of ringleader. And I wouldn't argue that he is. I think there's a much better argument for what y- you said, right? That he is, he's in on some of the ideas, 
he's down with some of the the racial stuff. He he he's a techno accelerationist and he's on the line. I do not though think that for a moment that he's giving any kind of direction to this. If anything, it's like you said, I think it's coming down the road from other people within his and the Silicon Valley world. Right. Right. Like I think I think there are guys back there like Curtis Yarvin and some of the you know the quieter quote unquote um brand of 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 tech fash that are probably having much more influence than he does on his own business the dark enlightenment that we heard so much about a few years ago and all of a sudden don't hear that word anymore yep well it's all the same world the article i wrote what two weeks ago now that is the thing that always strikes me about the neo-reactionary movement right especially Mm -hmm. the really deep Nick Land, Dark Enlightenment types, Yarvin, Bostrom. They understood the infiltration. They also understood that you can package ideas in a way that sounds way different than the thing you're selling. And those two, you know, the, the, the alt-right of the, of the early 2000s and mid-2000s and them, they were an interlinked chain of ideology and people. And so, you know, I think when people in 2018 even were like something very wrong has happened in Silicon Valley. They were starting to get this, the thing that we're all now faced with, with the whole reactionary eugenics world that is, you know, we're starting to find out is Silicon Valley. Right. Right. That is one of the scarier, you know, <laughs> thoughts <laughs> that I think we've, I've had since I started really paying attention to this stuff is the idea that, not only are these people thinking what they're thinking, they also control all of the social media algorithms that are being used to discuss it. Palantir, Clearview AI. Hmm. Clearview is the one that still, to me, like is poster boy for the alt-right, American new right, neo-reactionary thing is like, we are going to create fascist facial recognition tech, give it to the police for free, and then let the government see if they can regulate us after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to have been the play. That's, that seems to be the whole game now, right? How are you going to regulate us? If we swamp your ability to regulate us, we are above you. Mm -hmm. We are bigger than you and we own you. I mean, that's the feeling that's the game plan, right? Is inevitability is the idea that it's never, nothing you do can stop this thing from happening. This all plays into that. And it's not true. That's the biggest lie of all of this, right? Is we are the only people who can give these ideas the power of inevitability. And right. that's by not having these conversations, by not trying to raise a, a, a awareness. And it's still, we're still lucky enough that these guys' ideas are weird enough and off-putting enough <laughs> that, that like Tesreel, for example, isn't a major force in society. You know, like it is, we are getting lucky through one of those historical weirdnesses that every group of fascists, before they seize power, are essentially D&D dorks who, who want to rule the world. And, you know, understanding that takes a lot of that inevitability and that feeling of, 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 of powerlessness away from it. And that, that we're winning still. (laughs) (laughs) because just the most cringe bunch of dorks you could imagine right for instance blake masters lost and really 
it's because he's fucking weird. <laughs> it is. And I, it's one of the ongoing things that we see with these candidates that feel like even the one, the other ones that feels, you know, feel it. They are weird. Yeah. That doesn't, yeah. that level of weird doesn't resonate even with the right. Like it's off putting. And that's been very, we've been very lucky yeah. in, in that. We have to hope they don't find somewhat more resonant and charismatic people to start running in some of these spots, because if they do, it's going to be a huge problem. I mean, Masters yeah, got a yeah. lot closer than I think anybody's comfortable with, even though he made a video which looked like something out of like a serial killer manifesto and aired it. Like this is a commercial. He's just the creepiest dude on the planet. It's, I know. It's one of those things where it's just like I see him and I get like the flop sweats. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> um, no, and that's just it. Like I think the fear I have isn't even of a more smooth fascist. It, it, it's of, well, if we can't win as Republicans, we'll win as Democrats. Yeah. And we're going to run people who sound and look like democrats but once they're in office they're going to enact our plan and that's the fear i have because we're starting to see it with the republicans right they've done it in a couple states now where well i guess i'm going to go over to the republicans to vote now sorry guys i know you elected me as a democrat Hmm. but you know and that that's one of my fears is not that they keep running republicans is it's that they realize the republicans they have issues already stacked up against them that make the weird dude even weirder. Well, and, and I would say that, yes, that has happened in one, I believe, is it a congressional district or, uh, okay. It has happened where someone was elected as a Democrat and quickly flips. And, and I think that idea might be a little, seem a little far-fetched to people, but I would point out, uh, and, and remind everyone of how many failed actors we're dealing with here who then jump into politics. And if you think they are above pretending to be a Democrat for a year or two, you are incorrect. These yeah. are shameless people. They are failed actors who need a new gig. Here's some money. Go make it happen. It's not that difficult. No, and that's just it, right? Like we're assuming we we are operating still in politics 1.0. And we're on politics 3 um right now. Yeah. And and the reality is like when you're dealing with an, a party that has devolved to the point where the Republican party has now in this country. You're not dealing with an entity that is going to act or work in good faith. And that that just means you have to understand to, to, to really just accept that. And, and that, you know, that's the hard part. Some of this stuff, when I started writing about weaponized on reality, I would get a lot of, well, that's crazy. I have those, some of those same people now who I deeply respect come back to me and say, I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, a- anymore that that's <laughs> it's one of those things that's good. It's also one of those things where it's just like the playing field shifting so fast that you assuming that the Republicans aren't going to run a Democrat or yeah. are you assuming that we're not going to have some weird spate of stuff like what's happening here in Minneapolis where you have corporate aligned city council members coming in and using progressive language to then stain all progressive language with a code of shit, but also undermine the ability then to counter them with that language. You know, it's happening. It's just, it's not fully scaled yet. 
And I think that that's the part that concerns me, right, is we're looking at trends, all of us, that we can start to see trajectories on. But once you actually start to land these trajectories, you're getting into something so much spookier um, for the implication. Yeah. Well, and one th- one thing they they manage to do is they create a pattern. Once they've created that pattern, they know how the opposition will react to that pattern, and then they it's it's almost like a misdirection. Like they start to go, "Oh, we're repeating the same pattern," but they've created a new pattern, and and all of your preconceived ideas of what's going to happen next they're out the window. And when you talk about Russia in particular, this is a strategy that they have employed. Yeah. And it does keep you guessing. And, and for a lot of people, it just turns into, well, this is too confusing. I give up. And, and they're fine with that. Yep. Yeah. A huge portion of the population doesn't care about being informed as long as they feel like their needs are being met. Right. And right. so that's the issue, right? Like this is a multi-system exploit of American democracy and society. So like when you start getting into overlapping systems that are being co-opted or broken in fundamental ways it gets harder and harder then to pull back to 20 or thirty thousand feet which you almost have to do then yeah yeah and who's the good guy who's the bad guy well and that's just it i mean that's just it right like who is the good guy in the world that these people have constructed who is the good guy who is the bad guy so let's talk about some of the people that we can probably all agree. And I think most of the people listening on this podcast can agree that we would kind of point a finger and say, that's the bad guy right there. Uh, <laughs> you recently wrote on Twitter, so much of the research and writing I have done over the last few months has led back to two places, the Manhattan Institute and the Claremont Institute. They are two of the hubs for the right-wing attack against democratic norms. Why do we keep coming back to these two groups? I mean, it's the big money in the right right now, right? They, the, the ecosystem comes out from that. Um, there's been a ton written since early this year, roughly, about Claremont, especially its response to the pandemic and how it kind of set the tone then for the Republican attacks and some of the other attacks on masks and, and, and the pandemic and all of this. And so Claremont's being understood more and more, I think, for what it is, which is a, you know, a quote, intellectual hub for the, the right. And it's tied to then the, the Manhattan Institute and the Manhattan Institute. These, these are things that show kind of the right wing's co-option of traditional systems. Right. Say. The Manhattan Institute has been around 40 years. This is not some, some brainchild exclusively of the new right in the last 20 years, but it's reflecting the new American rights vision now because it's been co-opted so hard. And so, you know, Manhattan Institute specifically, they are the people who in part created the anti-CRT hysteria. They're the ones who have really targeted public education now with with Rufo's attacks in Florida. Um, And then you have links to guys like Rufo, Chris Rufo and uh, Hanina. You know, I mean, you start to go from like this veneer of mainstream and then you look a little bit harder and it's guys who are writing truly white nationalist, almost white identitarian screeds and and propaganda. Mm -hmm. And it it gets this veneer of real. So like Manhattan, you know, I would argue that Manhattan Institute has mainstreamed American fascism, whatever we want to call this thing that the new American right is in a way that almost nothing else 
could or did. And it did it in a way where it's now impacted our public policy. They've been refining, like, how do we talk to these people? And guys like that, guys like Chris Rufo have, I think, finally come up with a a pretty effective way to motivate reliably about 30% of the population to jump whenever they say, here's your new enemy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, if you look a little bit further back at the Manhattan Institute and, and you, you might be inclined to search the name Rudy Giuliani with it, <laughs> you're going to start to find some stuff that's even more interesting, namely how Manhattan Institute helped him manufacture all of his anti-crime stuff. These were law and order Reagan guys right back at that point. And so, you know, it's just kind of interesting to see the evolution of a, we're going to do some, some pro police work and some pro Giuliani work to where we are now at the time, everyone would have said that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And now I'm like, I have a mug with Rudy Giuliani's mugshot on it and the word Rico underneath and nothing is outside of the realm. (laughs) Yeah, we've gone from America's mayor to America's most felonious. It's just insane how the last 20 years have gone when it comes to this. Yeah, 22 years for Rudy is a lifetime or three, and he has wasted all of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he could be looking at spending a lot more than that. You know, this is not looking good for the man. Uh, No, he he may be one of the few of these guys that actually does die in custody. Like, yeah. that's actually how it's looking at this point. And that's crazy. to me. Like, if you had told me a year ago any of these people would be facing anything that looks like a trial, I would have laughed you out of the room. I've been proven wrong, and I'll take it. But Giuliani actually does look to have, I mean, true peril. Yeah. I've never liked the guy, so I'm sitting here just like. Oh, isn't that sad? Do, do, do we get to see him in an NYPD van? You know, like, I'm just sitting here asking, <laughs> asking the questions I need answered. No, and I think that, though, is a really good analogy for the broader right in the last 21 years is we've gone from horrifying inside baseball between things like the Manhattan Institute and Rudy's campaign to the manufacture of genocidal propaganda for someone who Giuliani is going to end up dying in prison for. That's a huge leap, but it's also, these are very similar, you know, like it's yeah. a very interesting track if you look at it. Well, and if you go back a little further talking about these are these are Reagan guys, well, before that you go 10 years further back and they're Cold Warriors. They're the ones that are, mm-hmm. let's tear down this wall. We've got to beat the Soviets. And now these are the people that are saying, ah, just let Putin have Ukraine. Just, just let him have it. Yeah. Yep. Because there's no position. It's whatever position we need right now to win. It's like real beliefs just get in the way. Yeah. They don't need that. No. It's it's a barrier. Real belief gets in the way of true belief. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge scary difference between real and true. <laughs> Can you expand on that? Because that's a, that's a great quote and point. Well, so like truth, right? The thing we understand to be truth is an entity. We can hold it, we can quantify it, we can see it, we can touch it, we can lick it, we can smell it. It's real. It exists. We all know it. And there's a huge difference between that and someone saying this is truth. This is, you know, like, I can go say anything I've written is the truth. I refrain from that because I don't think that's the right way to approach it. I think that's actually an argument that by its face is not one that is being held in good faith. Um, 
And so the difference truly is, can you prove? Because I can, anyone can say truth is truth. Reality is different. And yeah. Yeah. holding those things, holding those things, they might even feel the same, but they're not. And that's the hardest part, right? Like this gets into the huge philosophical conversation then too, that goes to the side of, I think a lot of misinformation and disinformation work, which is how do you define this? Why do we need to define it? Why is truth so important in politics? Why is reality so important to talk about in the context of society? Because in a society like we have today, where anyone can say this is the truth, we have to know what reality is. Yeah. And if you, and if you don't, we're back in the washing machine. Now, if we take that idea and we go to last week's Republican primary debate, Trump's not there. But they ask everyone on stage, do you believe in climate change? And no one, not a single candidate, raised their hand. And that is that is their truth, I guess. You can say it's bought and paid for, but mm-hmm. that's what they say they believe. Right. Exactly. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like belief, truth, and, and, and reality, right? Like they're all separated, but they all live together. And so like... You can have strong beliefs beliefs that aren't true, but are real. You can have strong feelings about reality that aren't truth. So, like, this is the ultimate problem, I think, with any of this, right? Is like, you're getting into stuff that's, like, right at the edge of not just the human condition, but, like, the way that our physiology understands and then compels us as humans to, to, to see and hear and feel and experience. And I think that's the part that weaponized reality came out of that understanding, right? Like you could be standing in the middle of a city and think the whole damn thing is, is Disneyland. But the thing that's actually Disneyland is the information that got you there, not being there. And that's the part, you know, like these are huge conversations, right? But they're the ones again, you know, earlier you asked, how do we combat this? I think it's these kind of conversations. Because these are the kind of conversations that underpin not just our understanding of truth, reality, whatever, but of the democratic process. Because these conversations require you to critically think through other people's views. And that ultimately is the thing that democracy works with. And so, you know, I think this is a good way, you know, if someone was wondering, what do you do? You have a conversation that sounds like it's above your pay grade, maybe. But you have it. Right. And you start having it. And then suddenly your neighbors are having it. And then suddenly your neighbors are having that conversation without ideas do spread. They do. And I, it, it, it reminds me of the way this, this bleeds over because it was a couple months ago that we had all of this culture war nonsense bleeding over into target and, Oh, target is selling this trans clothing and how, how dare they try to indoctrinate our kids. And of course, lives of TikTok and Matt Walsh and everyone got on the bandwagon that we got to boycott target. First it was Bud Light. Now we got to boycott target. Uh And, and I followed it because this is what we do. We watch this, but I was out in the real world, just living my life and speaking to people and in an everyday conversation, an acquaintance says, well, I like Target, but I don't know why they had to get so political. And <laughs> that is where you want to you, you can have a conversation that this isn't political. Yes, it's for these people, if for a certain audience, for a lot of the right, they, they've crafted it and, and put it out there as if it is a political argument. But this is not political. No, this is not politics. 
No. No, and I think that's a really good point, right? Like, I think a lot of the stuff we're we're stuck talking about as a larger group within the 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 you know in 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 the country is we're caught up on those things, not the bigger you know the other conversation that actually is the one that's effective, which is it's not politics, it's hate, yeah. it's anger, it, it's rage, it's it's all of these things, and I think presenting people with an option to see it outside of politics might be the way to start to shake cages. It might not change anything, but it's going to start shaking people's bird cages that they keep their little, you know, the little bird that is internally for some people that cage, I think actually can be shaken in on some people and some people a lot. Most people I think are generally decent people. And if they realize they're hurting someone, especially if it's someone they can see by their actions, that does change people's view. And I think the more and more that comes out about the damage that these crusades are doing, I think there is some chance that we start to have people just like, this isn't, we don't care. We, you know, like we don't care about your belief in this. We want people to be okay. And that seems to be happening. I mean, you you know, these special elections that the, the Democrats keep winning are on those kind of tracks. They might not be that conversation exactly, but it's it's in that world where people start to understand, like, this is hurting people. And yeah. generally, most people, as much as I'm a cynic online sometimes and as much as I go after certain people, most people are not the sociopaths that are required to continuously just push this level of hate. People have been dehumanized to such an extent that people who are posting this online saying these things, even if it's in replies to a real person, they don't treat it like they're replying to a real person. They don't act like they're saying a thing to a human who has feelings, who can be harmed by that. And when you start to humanize these people, these victims, and bring their stories forward, that can pierce through the veil. And it does really effectively. We've seen it with school yeah. shootings, right? Like the as much as some of this is a, a something totally separate from regular society with certain school shootings, what we've seen is the conversation around guns and violence has changed in orders of magnitude as we've humanized those that have been killed. And it's been one of the, you know, I'm 36. I grew up in the weird time where Columbine had happened. Some of the other shootings had happened, but my high school didn't do school shooter drills. We didn't do any of it. So I have a different view, but at the same time, it's the compassion. It's the understanding from people who don't have the same politics as I that really has changed not just like the understanding I think we all have, but the way that we view it, right? right. Like things have changed fundamentally in the last year and a half, I think, um, in how we understand school shootings and how you can see it reflected in the conversation. Because it's now the emotional conversation about how do we keep letting kids die versus the gun? Because the gun, as much as this sucks, you're never getting that gun out of their hand. Nope. It's the other conversation you have to have. And humanizing people, bringing wonderful stories of people's lives who are cut short to light, does that in a way that almost nothing else can. And I think we're going to have to look at things 
similarly with how we combat this information war, gray zone war. I think that's actually one of the interesting things about this, though, is that we could have this conversation literally for a month. We could do a month's worth of shows. You're never going to get to the bottom of it, and you're never going to fully outline it. And I think that's the part to me that's made it the most, one of the most interesting things I've ever studied is this is one of those puzzles that can regenerate itself at the edges. That's a very interesting puzzle to work on. Yeah. Cause it's always changing too. This isn't something that stays static. This isn't something that, Oh, this is all done. You know, the nice wow. thing about like, say if you're a Sovietologist or something is that the Soviet union ended. And there's a limit yeah. to what you're actually yeah. going to find out. Now it's just digging. It's not this constantly evolving thing that you still have to keep up with. And that's like what we're looking at here. That's a tough one. And that's a tough one, I think, even for myself. I took most of June off and a lot of July off. Because, I mean, you got you to gotta give yourself some room here. It is a constantly rebuilding puzzle. And with any of these, I mean, as you guys know, you do have to go touch grass. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, with this one, because it's a puzzle too, puzzles that regenerate can ruin you if you're a, if you're a paradelia person, cause you'll see patterns the whole way out. And it's not like the patterns aren't there, but at some point you have to take a break from those patterns and step back and say, okay, I need to come up for air. Yeah. I mean, and admit your own limitations because literally everyone I know who, who does this has taken some kind of break at some point. No, you have to. No one can do this indefinitely. And if you tell yourself or others you can, you're already in a dangerous place. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you had a quote from January that was excellent. You said, weaponized unreality works. Using conspiracies to drive anti-democratic legislation and laundering it all through congressional messaging and the right-wing fear machine is the neo-authoritarian norm from Russia to Hungary. This is right out of the Orban playbook. And we talked a little bit about Russia at the beginning of the program and how Russia does this. But Hungary is another one that kind of slips under the radar for a lot of people. So what can you tell us about how the playbook works in Hungary? Why was it so effective? Well, I mean, Orban... You know, I think a lot of people think of Putin as this anti or this kind of illiberal democratic leader, right? Right. I actually would argue that Orban is the prototype, not Putin. Putin's a dictator. He's always been a dictator. It's just he understood he had to kind of couch things different. Orban, his goal, you know, like the goal really was to create an illiberal state that looks and functions like a democracy, but only serves one goal. And he got very good at that between consolidation of power, targeting media that was critical of him, and, and pretty much just doing the, system, the systematic shutdown of every check and balance you can imagine in a democratic society. But then the thing that he did that was somewhat novel, I wouldn't say fully novel, but somewhat, is he replaced them with a right-wing infrastructure that looks, talks, sounds a lot like that same what we would consider democratic system of news journalism checks and balances of different sorts governmentally and he's replaced them with people that are his people right yeah and that is the kind of quiet and slow coup that we have seen here since 
2001, right? Is this re the ship of Theseus, right? It's one of the most tired, I think, things in the all the talking about the far right. But the reality is that is what this is, is rebuilding the entire thing in an image that they can control. And that's where Orban and the American right start to merge is that thinking the ultra nationalist, ultra anti LGBTQ community thought process all fits into this then, right? As in group and out group um, delineators and ways to wedge members of uh, groups that might push back against one another and right. broader society. And I mean, I say that about Orban and Hungary. And literally, we could switch those words out and say that about the United States under Trump, and it would be the same conversation, maybe differing ways and cultural stuff. But the, the thing that like this form of authoritarianism we're dealing with, this weaponized unreality thing, it's a franchise. Any authoritarian-minded group can pick it up, drop it in the country that they want to deploy it in, and utilize that country's uh, culture, um, history, myth against itself. It's literally a flat-packed authoritarian movement. <laughs> look at El Salvador, and that's essentially what they've done. And and you look at their their messaging online, and and sometimes you can't tell: is this MAGA or is this El Salvador? I I don't know. Oh, and and there's the leader. There's uh, President Bukele on Tucker Carlson's show because it's yeah it, they're saying the same things and they love each other for it. It's all the same mm-hmm. ecosystem. It just is franchises for different societies. That's how I've come to look at it. It's the McDonaldization of authoritarianism, right? Like it's this, we can set up shop. We have a, we have a plan, but then all we have to do is tweak the menu. So the population comes and eats. That's yeah. It. It, it's like they, they bring in some consultants with the, it's, <laughs> the fascist playbook. Literally <laughs> it's the McKinsey model of fascism, right? We're going to show up. We are going to give you the playbook and then you figure out how to deploy it at home. Yeah. And it seems to be the game, right? We've seen it deployed there. We've seen it deployed in Poland. We've seen it in France at different scales. Look at Brazil. Yeah, look at Brazil. I mean, look at I, look at Argentina, right? Mm-hmm. It is a franchisable form yeah. of a virulent form of right-wing authoritarianism that uses society and government against itself. It's a mm-hmm. different world than the authoritarianism of even 30 years ago. Well, if you look at the Cold War and you had the U.S. and the Soviets vying for power and all these satellite states and we're going to back the Soviets are going to back the Kuwait, this guy and the U.S. is going to back the other guy. And and it took a lot of money. It took a lot of time. These things often failed. They were they were often unsuccessful because people didn't actually want it or, or believe it. And it looked artificial and fake. And this is so much easier. Yeah. So much easier. Well, and it feels less plastic, right? Because it's tailored to the country it gets deployed in. So like Pinochet, he was importing Chicago boys to bring this economic largesse to his, this thing. You don't have to do that anymore because no. now it's included in the flat pack. You get a bunch of them online and you just go talk to them. <laughs> yeah. It's a corporate model for authoritarianism, right? Like this is the, the, the equivalent of a business maneuver. And a company coming into a country to take over the country in a hostile manner in the way that you 
raid and then take over a corporation. Yeah. Dis- distrust in the product. Right. D- distrust in the thing that the product runs on. There's something very plasticky about the whole damn thing. And you're right about that. But, you know, looking out at the broader culture, we've conditioned people. And I think it's very interesting that you point out since 2001, not to really care if it smells like plastic to some big extent. No, that's just it. The whole society, right? Like this is the way, the reason I think it works, right? Is our culture is plastic. Since 2000, since 99, we've foregone a real society. We've Disneyified the one we live in. And we live in a commodified version of the world. We don't live in the world. So this is an easy exploit for a society that already has a consumer understanding of reality built into it. And that's, you know, I think I... I've written, I know, pretty extensively about that plastic neoliberal Disneyland America and how that really, I mean, gave rise to this thing that we now understand as a, you know, as an authoritarian movement. Right. And it all plays together, right? Like, no one cares if it smells like plastic because, you know what, you went out downtown last week and it was all a corporate plastic bubble. Right. And so our life is already plastic. What's one more piece? Doesn't even feel weird anymore. It's like, what's the actual difference between like hyper normalized hyper reality is a terrible place for all of us to be living in. It really, really is. So I did want to ask you just personally, the way to fight this means making common cause on the left, but I know you've been fairly critical of Democrats. What are they doing? What is the party itself getting right? And and what, in your opinion, are they getting wrong? The one thing that I can say for sure they got right, at least the once, and seem to have kind of figured out, is recuperating some of the language of the right. Like Dark Brandon, I think, is a great example of what they've done really well, is they understood they could neuter something that had some extremely dark backing, but also really powerful backers to try and make it a thing within the right. Right. I think they figured that out. They figured out some of the mimetic ways that you can neuter messaging. That's really been cool to see. I will give them that. Like someone's figured out, at least on the dark brand in front, how to shift something back. And that's really cool. I think all of the systemic issues that birthed Trump in the movement are still here and are still working at a very high level. And I think for me, a lot of my criticism comes from that, right? The same way I criticized Obama for this idea of hope and then doing everything you could to make that really a hard thing to buy. That for me is a tough one. Biden and the White House has also understood the rights machine is going to say whatever they want. So sometimes the best thing you can do is just shut up. Yeah. And playing the game as someone who plays the game far too much with right wingers, it's not worth it at the national level. You have to tango other places, but I think there's an actual strategy to not saying anything super overt. And then when you get asked questions about it, little knife jabs, little pen knife, right? Just a little mm-hmm. poke. And that seems to actually be really effective in a way I did not think it would be. The guy couldn't grab the media if he wanted to, but that's media issue, I think, more than a Biden issue. Right. You know, where Trump can manufacture coverage, Biden has to really work towards it. That's an argument, though, not against Biden. That's that's a media issue, I think. But, you know, again, we're getting filtered stuff that's bad info 
or bad interpretations of good info for both sides. So it's hard right now because of some of the issues like the Jim Stewartson level issues of conspiratoriality in the, in the liberal camp. But the White House, the one thing they have not engaged in, which I'm somewhat shocked about, but also very happy about, they have not engaged in one second of resist lib style cooking at all. I will give them that one again because there is, an, I think, a almost human imperative to try and get into the game once things progress to the level the right has really pushed things. And not, may be more powerful in this case. It very well might be. So I, I'll give him that. I think my, my issues are, you know, he's a neoliberal. Yeah. We're in a shit place economically because of this guy. I don't think we can write that. So when you say avoiding the the resist lib, essentially reality, I mean, it is the question of do you do you match the right one for one? Do you counter their unreality with your own unreality? And I think what you're very much saying and, and we agree with is that is that is not the answer. No. And thankfully, Biden and his people have seen that they need to stay tethered to this world. Yeah. I mean, they've done it in certain cases, like with the pandemic response. I think you could argue that they stepped into the into the the unreality category. Again, I think we are going to come to find that there is an upsetting level of political calculus that's gone on in Biden's administration. But. I think that's nothing different than any other administration. It just happens to be that we're in a different position now looking through the glass, right? Like we can see something different. That's not to give Biden any room because he definitely has done some things that I don't agree with. But, you know, any time, and this is my argument, you know, as someone who is not a huge fan of the Democrats or the Republicans, I don't like electoralism, but I have with the last two elections really been of the camp that there's a harm reduction argument that gets made purely because even with Biden being a disaster for certain things and being unable to maybe deal with the reality on the ground because he's older, because he's a long-termer in the government, whatever, the distance we get from a movement like Trump's being in power allows more and more of reality to start setting like concrete again. And that gives us room And that's what we need right now is room to allow reality to start setting up again and allowing people to have the conversations that set reality in the way that we understand it. And that would be my one, just like my one thought on Biden is the more distance we have, the better from the authoritarian movement. Biden sucks, but anything is better than an eight year run of an incredibly authoritarian right wing movement that has made it clear they want to end democracy. Speaking of, you know, an eight year authoritarian movement that's saying that they unequivocally want to end democracy. What do you think a second Trump term looks like if he somehow, God forbid, gets in? Well, I mean, the first month is the end of the federal government, as we understand it. We've seen the documents they've put out. I mean, it's the end of every system we can think of that makes up like the social system we understand as government. I mean, I think there's a real chance that I mean, he's made it clear he'll target journalists immediately with the full weight of the federal government. They've made it clear that they will use the entire weight of the national security apparatus against those they see as enemies to the Republican-led party. I mean, it's it's literally a full-on techno-fascist 
movement. So, I mean, you have to assume everything's on the table, right? And that includes stuff that is right at the edge of what any of us would consider rational. Um, and, you know, so for me, if you really take the logic of what they've said they are and their goals are, I mean, that's multiple members of the Senate, either in prison or dead, that's mul- in Congress, that's multiple judges, that's entire judicial branches gone. That's entire. I mean, it's literally just the end of the federal government. Yeah. It's the end of every state government. It's the end of every grassroots level ability to counter it because they'll just take your school now is this. Your edu- your higher education is this. If you go outside the bounds, you're going to jail. Right. The problem is with any authoritarian movement, once it actually tips into it, the system starts to reinforce it. And we've already seen that in certain places. Florida, for example, like we're seeing how that feedback starts to work. It's a pretty immediate transformation. It might not be overnight that you notice it, but it's within a month that, you know. Yeah. Why are there guys in unmarked paramilitary uniforms standing outside our grocery store. You you start to get the ball rolling in multiple directions in more ways than can be countered, that can be dealt with. And once they start, you just can't stop them. All mm-hmm. you need is one. I mean, that's the hard part, right? You could start 4,000 balls rolling. All you need is one to make it through and you've got it. And that's the part where the right really understands all they have to do is continually do the thing. And at some point, they are going to poke a hole. Whether or not that hole floods the ship, none of us can say. I actually am of the belief that we're further from a cohesive, nonviolent coup than we were before January 6th. The polling that's come out over the summer, I mean, is really tough for a lot of reasons. One of them is like a huge majority of Americans are willing to take up arms. You break that down, a lot larger amount of people are willing to take up arms to defend democracy than to end it. None of this is where you want to be. You do not want to be in a situation where you're having to pull who's got more guys ready to pull the trigger. Like that tells me a lot. Someone the other day asked me, what do I think happens? I think we squeak this one out with about three inches to spare (laughs) and it's going to be the scariest election season anyone's ever seen. It's going to feel a lot more like a terror campaign. And we're going to squeak by and it's going to be scary as hell. You know, like that's the only real outcome I can see barring something truly a true black swan event. You know, like if NATO's attacked, for example, in Europe, right? Like if a NATO country is attacked by Russia, I think Biden wins it without even a question. Like there are black swans in both directions. Right, right. One of the most horrifying things about this election season to me is we're leaving it up to literal chance when we should be having this conversation at the national level right yeah so what keeps you going you've been doing this for a while you mentioned that you took a little break but you know you're one of the people i see here day in and day out kind of you know putting it down fighting the good fight how do you stay in it i'm an endlessly optimistic person and i don't know why (laughs) (laughs) my shrink doesn't know why no one really knows why i'm a big fan of democrats norms democratic norms are an idea and sometimes you know you have to fight for the ideas that you feel the most strongly for and you know earlier i said it was a calling and i truly believe that right like we i think there are moments in your life for some people and it's not for everyone where something happens and you see the full relief 
for a couple seconds and you realize, oh my God, this is, this is the thing. And for me, it was understanding that if you don't say something, you're tacitly saying you don't care what happens. And partially it's because I have so many people in my life directly that I know have been impacted by this already in horrible ways. I want a better world for everyone. I want my brother's kids to have a better world. And the only thing I know to do then is to do this kind of work, whether it's writing and putting my own stuff up, whether it's talking to people like you, whether it's talking with people in my community, the thing we can do is talk. I unfortunately am very good at that for better and worse. And, you know, for me, I understood that to be a place then I can maybe say something and I can maybe bring up some things. And for me, that's how I still see this. Nothing's inevitable uh, in this game. And that's kind of why I'm out there still, especially on Twitter is like, I just want people to understand a, the, the scope and scale of the issue we're dealing with, but also that like, just because it's there doesn't mean it has to end there. We do not have to end up in that position. And that's what keeps me going is right. knowing we don't end up in that position. If we, if we, you know, it's enough people speak up you do not end up in that position. Yeah. It's a great thought. Definitely. So Carl, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you guys. No, this has been great. I, yeah. I you know, <laughs> I love it. Right. You've been great. Can you tell us where people can go to support your work? Yeah. You can go to instituteofunreality.com and check that out. That's my website kind of laying out the technical side of kind of the authoritarian movement that we're dealing with that we talked about today and then uh, also on that website i've been posting analysis again and some some more longer form kind of deep dives into the finer points of things whether it's the alt-right and then the american new right and silicon valley or um, just general terrible people saying terrible things you know um, <laughs> so you can check me out there yeah just part of the job mm-hmm <laughs> Day in and day out, and you go again. Yep. People thought when I said the dystopia beat, I was joking, and now they <laughs> no. all send me care packages. Yeah, <laughs> you get that tattooed or something. <laughs> <laughs> My business cards at this point just say "brainworm aficionado" on the front, so you know I might I might up it to that. Uh, I might have to use that. Yeah, that's, that's a, good a good one. one. Definitely, it works. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Carl, it's been great. Thank you so much. And you have a great rest of your day. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. Take care. Have a good one, guys. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.